under to where we uh, um, save the Pitaka Puja, Maga Puja in February and, and Asala Puja in July. So this is probably the most uh, uh, important in terms of uh, say, everybody, including the, the lay people and the monastics. And they, of course, the, the um, celebration of the birth, the enlightenment, and the final uh, Paranibbana, or the death of the Lord Buddha, uh, celebrated all three events on the full moon of May. Uh, and this, of course, in the reflective side of Buddhism, where you're, you know, you're contemplating the way things are, uh, this gives us a chance to use this event in terms of birth and death, and then the, the enlightenment, which is the point between those two. Say, we've all been born, and we will all die in the future, and the important thing is to be enlightened, hopefully between those two events. Because in the human form, the, this enlightenment is the, is the kind of, uh, you know, is, the, is, the, uh, is what is important really about our humanity. Yeah. And this is for you to contemplate, not for you to believe or contest, but this ability that we have within the human state to awaken to life to be an awakened one, enlightened, seeing things as they are, within the limitations and uh, uh, that we find ourselves as individual human beings. So we're not trying to, to be enlightened in a big way, like uh, know everything about everything, and, and have a, you know, kind of like God, where you, you're, you're the, at the top, of the, the knower of everything, from the macrocosmic, position, uh, but from the position that we all find ourselves, which is very humbling, isn't it, as an individual human entity, seemingly in, in contrast to uh, the vast universe that we live in, a seemingly unimportant uh, ingredient and uh, in being in the whole system. We all know that if any of us died, it wouldn't cause any great problems to the rest of the universe. Uh, only some megalomaniac would think that, that, would, that it would. But we all recognize it's like, you know, like I remember contemplating the termites in the forests in Thailand. Because right? they've got so many termites and ants. And uh, thinking about how human beings, we take ourselves so seriously and we're so full of our own self-importance that we, we can assume that somehow that our presence, our existence, is somehow more significant than a termite. So I tried to imagine a termite having the same feelings. You know, they all look the same to me, and they, they, you know, to me they're they're a nuisance and they're not terribly important to my, you know, they're not at all important to my existence. It'd be better if they weren't there at all. 
when you're out in the forest, you know, they start invading your meditation hut. Uh, you, you have even murderous uh, feelings arise. But it's an individual entity, just like this, isn't it? A termite is, a, is an entity, a singular entity, a conscious form in the universe. And so, but in our world, the human world, we we can easily just uh, eradicate termites. I think that it doesn't matter because their life doesn't matter, but ours does. But also, human beings are quite capable of eradicating each other. We well know in this century the amount of genocide and uh, that's taken place is, is amazing. You know. Uh, reflection on how little we value the humanity that we have you know we we can take you know we can take a whole group of human beings and just eradicate them kill them off because they're different they don't agree with our and uh, without and be quite reasonable about it, like genocide and things like this uh, based on you know not just passionate uh, uh, feelings of rage in the present, but a cold, calculated determination to eradicate millions of people. But when we see the, the, uh, the you know, in terms of Buddhist uh, reflective reflection on the way things are, then you begin to see the, the gift that we all have as being a conscious entity, a single conscious entity. In, uh, in the universal system. And our position is humble. We're not, none of us are important really, or we, we can't really, and if we're really nutty, we can't exaggerate our importance. But when it comes down to reflection on the way it is, we're, we're not terribly important to anything in this universe. Maybe a few people for a little while, which is about the best we can manage. We're not gods. We're not. Uh, we're not. We don't have uh, fantastic powers to do things. Uh, we we have animal forms, so we have to we procreate, and we we have to eat food. And the mammalian uh, animal world is very much uh, a part of our experience, also the instinctual realm of survival, procreation, so forth. Is is what we also experience in our life in this form. But then in the, the Buddhist uh, perspective, we have this reflective mind, right? meaning that we can contemplate our own existence, the way things are. And the Buddha carried this too, very, to the enlightenment position of this pure state of awareness. Uh, you know, we, we're not just we're not just uh, looking at the world, uh, uh, at the objective world that we see, but we're also contemplating the inner world our, that we create, our own emotional habits and views and opinions and feelings and that, that, that we feel uh, the, a subtle and gross kind of uh, assumptions and perceptions that we that go through consciousness uh, in the moments of our lives. We can reflect on that also, as well as the things like what we see or 
hear, smell, taste, touch. But we can also reflect on the, the, the actually aware as an object of the, the feeling or the thought or the mood or the emotion that we, we have in the present. And these things are, you know, more uh, coarser passions like anger and lust are quite obvious that as you develop mindfulness then you're aware of subtleties of just, of just uh, movement of, of feeling, emotion uh, in, a, in a moment, of just a doubt or, in a, or a hesitation or a slight uh, pang or, or just the feeling of being threatened or or uncertain or insecure, uh, there's this ability to observe this as a, as a mental formation. So just the, the anxiety, the worry, these kind of, of emotions that we have are very much a part of, especially of a society like this one, of a, a, a Western uh, affluent society where they, the the outward conditions are fairly well under control. You know, just on the on the level of survival. You know, just trying to to, make, to survive another day by trying to scrounge some something to eat. But we we have quite a comfortable life and a lot of protection from, uh, say, the government, from the economy, and and the social stability. So as a modern life in, in, in affluent countries like this uh, either makes us very kind of superficial and weak and complaining and ungrateful kind of creatures, which you can see uh, how middle class or, or affluent lifestyles or, or materialism makes, uh, you know, makes us into rather weak uh, uh, kind of creatures where we complain, we expect and demand a lot and, and then complain when we don't get it. So you, you find in countries like this or in the States, you know, an incredible amount of people endlessly complaining about everything and then blaming their parents or their governments or their leaders or their husbands or wives, children, and blaming, in the sense of blaming, complaining, worrying, uh, anxiety, all these are, are neurotic uh, kind of uh, emotions that we feel when we're in a fairly safe uh, political and economic system. You don't feel that much when you're on the level of survival and you don't worry uh, about uh, things that we worry about as when we all living a secure life. So you get a lot of mental problems in, in, the, in affluent countries. Notice in Thailand, which is becoming affluent, the amount of mental illness in that is increasing. Many <laughs> the middle classes and the affluent people as they get they get those kind of situations and they also start breaking down mentally because they're lies you know, so self-centered and the security there's a level of security uh, material security and support from outside but this also is opportunity like like in terms of uh, meditation that's why we come here isn't it why we 
we, our interest in the Dhamma is because we, we realize that, that, uh, that even if we should become the richest people in the world and get everything, everything we desire and want, uh, guaranteed security until death, then the best quality of everything, the best government, best economy, the best partner, the best children, best house, <laughs> and even the best of the best, we'd still be in the same position, discontented, worried, anxious. And because uh, we haven't really gone to the root of the problem, which is uh, the, uh, the ignorance uh, that we that we operate from, that basic delusion of a self and, and the conditioning of the mind that we, we tend to perceive through. We, we, we acquire a whole level of perception and attitude uh, that's based, that comes out of not understanding things as they really are. And so we, we interpret our experience of life through these distortions. And the biggest distortion is a sense of ourself as a, as a human body. That I am this body. And yet the society, uh, you know, that's the way everyone thinks and perceives and talks. I am the human, this body is me. Uh, and so vanity and all this come from that, from identity with the appearance, the age, the, the race and all this of the, of the, of the body attractiveness or whatever uh, the, I, the sense of it is me and mine is one of the basic delusions that causes us endless suffering and unhappiness so the Buddha uh, when he under his, with his compassion taught you know was teaching a way to break out of these delusions uh, that we acquire I mean, we can't help it I mean, because we, we, you know, we have our parents. Uh, I don't think anybody's parents were perfectly enlightened beings, and uh, when they, you know, when they probably wouldn't have had you if they had been. Who <laughs> 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 would be here? <laughs> no, because and <laughs> so you acquire. You know the uh, all the problems, the attitudes of your parents and peers and class and race, ethnic background, uh, nationality, and so forth. We we get that whole all that as a conditioning that we acquire. Some of it's all right, some of it uh, silly and foolish, some of it's downright you know horrific. But we whatever we we get it, and then then we wonder why, even under the best conditions, life is, is unsatisfactory, why we're unhappy or, or in a world where we maybe think we should be happy and we're not. When we contemplate this realm that we live in, we begin to see it in terms of what it really is. For example, the, the impermanent nature of conditions. And this is a very obvious truth, you know, it's not something, not mystical or hard to fathom was quite obvious that the, that the experiences that we have is birth and death. We're born, we will die. 
And before we die, we always have to experience the loss of loved ones, don't we? The death of, of parents or, or grandparents or, or loved ones or pets. And always we, you know, when we're children, when, a, when your pet uh, goldfish dies or your, or your hamster or whatever, you feel, you experience a sense of loss grief at the loss of the love and this is so this is a, a common uh, human experience that we all have between birth and death is and at my age you know you're experiencing a lot of death of loved ones parents teachers all that relatives friends that get old and die and uh, as I, when, when I was younger I did not many people I loved uh, seemed to die when I was younger, now at this age, in the 60s, the ongoing uh, experience of loss of the love through death. And so this is, this is you begin to contemplate grief and the loss of the love as, as experience, rather than as just trying to uh, ignore it or, or, or uh, you know, to think that there's something wrong with it. We began, the Buddha encouraged this this contemplation, reflection on the way it is. Or having to be with, with what we don't like. So much of our life we have to bear with situations or people or conditions that are painful, unpleasant, unwanted. And so this is common to every human experience, is, is the suffering that comes through, through having to bear with, endure pain, uh, Age, disease, uh, unpleasantness, uh, change, unwanted changes in the society, and and the general uh, unpleasantness and confusion or, or horror that that some of you have probably experienced in wars and so forth. That uh, that this is also a part of human experience between birth and death. In the material world, the capitalistic systems, isn't it? We have a tremendous... They, they, the, the, the capitalism, of course, it, uh, is based on this, making us wanting things that we don't have yet. So modern society, they're always, they're always creating these illusions that somehow we'd be happy if we had new and better things. So advertising is based on that. In, in Britain, I think, it's got some of the most clever advertising I've ever seen. You know, it's compelling. You, you, you like to figure it out. And it's not just blatant, buy this, this is the best hard sell approach, but it, it's very psychologically involves you. And you start, when you're going driving, and you start noticing the, the subtleties of British advertising hold your attention, make you want things. It's interesting. I gave up smoking years ago. Then coming here to Britain, watching all these these clever advertisements for cigarettes, with, which may be hazardous to your health, I have increasing kind of longing to start smoking again. <laughs> I think it's British advertising. That, uh, I'm just going to stop reading those uh, advertisements.
also we, we, you know, modern life is superficial, isn't it? We find materialism and that. It's a very, it has no depth to it. It doesn't bring out the, the finer qualities of our humanity. It makes us quite selfish in vain. And uh, so we, we, we think of, you know, what we want, what we should have, our rights, and make endless demands. And, on each other and on the government and on the world, on the universe. And then we, we feel let down or we feel it's unfair, we feel hurt or offended uh, by the fact that we, we can't have everything we want. Or happiness is a guarantee, you know, that you'd like to have ha- be happy, have a, feel happy, feel, feel secure and safe. And yet, no matter how much we try. Happiness is, you know, we have moments of it, but it's hard to sustain it for very long. Happiness or, or even a sense of security. That it's, uh, it's still this an- endless anxiety and, and that, that, that haunts us because we think a lot. And we, when we think a lot and think out of ignorance, not understanding things, then we, we end up full of doubt and, and confusion and despair as a result. So, we, we're increasingly aware now in countries like this that, that it's, we, there's no point in trying to endlessly prop up, make it better in, in terms of its, con, its traditions, conventions, and so political, economic, social things. That maybe there's something we have to do ourselves. Maybe we just, you know, that's something that we have to grow up a bit more, or take responsibility for our lives, or, uh, and, 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 we, and also we have the encouragement to look more deeply and understand the conditions and conventions that we have to live with. Not in order to, to uh, judge them according to they, they aren't good enough or, or things like this, but just to understand the limitations and uh, of conventional reality, that it's, that it's very limited uh, and, and when we depend on it, it's inevitably going to fail us. It's conventional reality is, is, is very nature, is unsatisfactory. So when we seek our refuge and, and become dependent on conventions or on conditions, things that are changing and, 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 or, you know, and, and, and uh, that whose nature is to to change, to begin and end, to be born and die. Then, then we can only be let down by it. You know, feel the sense of being let down, disappointed by the world that we live in, by the people we live with, by the society that we live in. In monastic life, isn't it? In, in uh, I mean, if you attach even to monastic life, Buddhist monasticism, people get disillusioned or disappointed with it because the attachment even to monasticism will let you down. Things change. Monks disrobe, nuns disrobe. People lose their interest. Uh, People will say, oh, I remember... Uh, when we, uh, ten years ago at Amravati, when, when uh, there's a 
they, they made the thing about they're attached to the way Amaravati was ten years ago, or Chitter, or something like that. And then, then they say, what's happened to Ajahn Pabakuro? What's happened to... <laughs> and they say, they've all left. Oh, they were wonderful monks. They, they made us feel so welcome. Now we come here, nobody knows us, and they don't welcome us like they used to. As they, the, uh, the attachment too, there may be a person or a particular monk or nun or, or a particular phase of monastic development. You know, the, the, this is, leads to what? Disappointment. Dis uh, disillusionment later because the problem is always with the attachment and uh, it's always impressed me you know the the Buddhist directness that the Buddha you know he's never pointing to conventions as saying they're uh, you know saying that he's pointing to the conventional world the conditioned realm uh, as for, you know in terms of its impermanence but he's not saying that there's anything wrong with it or that it should be any other way but just getting us to notice the way it is the the arising the ceasing of con conditions those subtle mental states as well as as the coarse physical world that we can see or hear and then just a movement of thought or emotion or feeling or uh, that is impermanent as well, well as uh, say just the day and day changing to night or the seasons changing. So the Buddha pointed to attachment. Ubadana is a is a big word in in our tradition. It means clinging and attachment through ignorance, not understanding. In turn, the way we say it in Theravada style is not understanding, not having penetrated the Four Noble Truths in their three aspects and twelve insights. Uh, having not done that, then we uh, create suffering uh, because there's this avicca or this, this, this ignorance that, that influences our experience of life. So we, we are always interpreting the experience of life from the habits we have, from emotions, from our cultural background, from our karma, from the sense of our person, our self-importance, our personality. And so when we do that, then we create this suffering because as a person, as a personality, as a, as a man or a woman or a monk or a nun or a European or American or whatever, uh, these things are, when we, when we interpret life, with that is the kind of... Uh, assumption of the identity then we experience suffering as a result every time but when we see things in terms of what they really are because of, of like the contemplating this attachment this ubadana dandha desire and attachment to desire when we begin to notice this because in the human mind, we have a reflective ability. We can observe desire and attachment as we're, as we're doing it, as we're, as we're caught in it. We have desires and we can observe. There's an ability to observe, to know that there's desire present. I mean, we, we're not just 
caught blinded by desire, we can actually witness, observe it, see it, know what it is. And the, and the way we attach to it, the habit tendency of this, we have a desire, we, if we're not awake, we're not mindful, then we, we have a desire, we attach, and then we become whatever we're desiring. But when we're taking this refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, then we're, we're it's a transcending the desire. We still feel these desires. Doesn't really mean we don't ever have any more desires, but we know them. We become aware of them as as things that are passing through in conscious experience. So we can see them in terms of what they really are. Desires are impermanent. They're not self. Attachment to desire will always. Uh, the result will always be some form, some form of suffering or discontentment. Now, this you have to. This is not a doctrine that you believe, but this is being said as a as a contemplation. This is something you have to find out for yourself. Maybe you'll find attachment to desire is is permanent happiness. I don't know. If you do, tell me. <laughs> tell me what particular desire brings you permanent happiness. I, I might try it myself. <laughs> so in the Buddha's, the, the uh, historical Buddha, Gautama the Buddha, you know, this is the, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, is a very profound teaching uh, because it's pointing to this, this basic human experience that we all share, suffering. That's a common, most common human experience that every human being has. And so it, and that's, he put that, that, the first noble truth. And that puzzles people, Western people a lot. Why did the Buddha put suffering as the first noble truth? Because we aren't used to looking at things like that. We, we're used to, I mean, we're used to coming from uh, more of the, an ideal position of love and compassion and, and, uh, and God, uh, things of, say, more metaphysical kind of, uh, uh, of approaches to religious experience. And so sometimes we in the West, you find people quite baffled by Buddhism because it, why did the Buddha, uh, what is a noble truth anyway? It's not a metaphysical truth, but it's a, called a noble truth. And it's pointing to something that's so ordinary. And so we contemplate this. We, 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 we're not just asked to go around thinking that everything's suffering. That's a, that will just get you depressed. If you if you if you're the kind of Buddhist that that attaches to the view that everything's suffering, then you're in for severe depression. Better to be a born again Christian or a Sufi. I'd, I'd become a Sufi, something like that, where you kind of dance and and talk about love all the time. That sounds a lot more fun. And then uh, dukkha, suffering. But the suffering is then some is is 
is is something to uh, the Buddha's insight into suffering into understanding. So we're changing the direction from just trying to avoid this missed suffering that we're experiencing into into looking at it, admitting it, observing it, rather than just trying to get rid of it. And so this is very much what we we begin, many of us feel is very has been very beneficial in for us as individuals who've been practicing in this Buddhist way for a number of years. Because, you know, the, this dukkha is something that we all experience. I mean, I became a monk 30 years ago. You know, I didn't have, I mean, I had a fairly decent life. You know, I wasn't abused as a child. I had nice parents and came from affluent background and, and had all the social privileges and benefits. I didn't have anything to complain about. You know, and some people had been nasty to me at times. <laughs> a few unhappy love affairs and things like this. But, uh, you know, as far as real, being really abused, mistreated, misunderstood, and that, not, no, I think it's quite a privileged, fortunate life as a lay person. But the, the suffering was... Uh, was in was this, this this mind that just created endless problems? It was just a, a mind that would endlessly, you know, just go on and on and on, worried, anxious, full of self uh, criticism. Endlessly kind of, I developed these uh, very negative ways of seeing myself, always in a critical way. So the internal these things in you that was always criticizing, I was always criticizing myself. And uh, so there is a, this is just a horrible way to live, you know, to have to live in this, in this realm of just so much negativity that you create in your mind. But it becomes so, such a strong habit. And the suffering was, was, was really, you know, you, sometimes you wanted to commit suicide. Sometimes I even, you know, have suicidal thoughts. Might as well just get it over with. I don't want to spend, you know, all the rest of my life and I come from a long live family and endlessly kind of be in this morass of self-criticism and disparagement. So, so then the, the hope was I had in this Buddhism because the Buddha said suffering and the way and the way of non-suffering, the end of suffering. So developing this practice, dukkha, or the first noble truth, meant a lot to me because in terms of trying to be happy, I tried it. And, and uh, I, you know, I certainly had moments of happiness. It wasn't, it wasn't something I didn't experience, but it was so fleeting. And then, the, then these uh, strong negative uh, attitudes were t- tended to become increasingly strong as I grew older, with, uh, and this sense of despair. So the Buddhist uh, practice was something that, that I could see, it had a, you know, to me, resonated as something really worth uh, investigating. And it's through this direct looking and contemplating, admitting, feeling, it's not just 
not analyzing, but actually feeling, willing to experience suffering fully and accepting that feeling, that embracing that as a, as experience. That's what my, this understanding of dukkha is. It's not just being analytical uh, uh, understanding of dukkha. It's a very intuitive understanding of dukkha. To intuit, you, you know, you have to embrace it's a intuition, is ability to, to really be in the present. Not just thinking this dukkha is because of this or that, but it's really, uh, this is the way it is. It's this feeling, this, this emotional uh, quality in the present is, is this way, which is non-judgmental. It's not is not criticizing, it's observing, it's accepting of it. And in that acceptance and, and uh, patience with the misery and, and suffering of our human experience, we begin to observe its, its cessation because dukkha is impermanent. And when you accept it and fully feel it, then and in that uh, and be patient with it, then you find it, 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 it disappears, it ceases. And then you're aware of the, the realization of non-suffering. Conscious, ex conscious experience where you're not creating suffering. And, and so this is, the, this is the enlightenment, or the seeing things as they really are that we as human individuals can realize and know directly between before we die. <coughs> On the Wesak day, maybe this uh, birth, you know, like Buddha was born in Lumpini, 2,539 years ago. His father was King Siddhartha. His mother, Mahamaya. He was an orphan. I mean, he, she died right after he was born. He had a stepmother. I, I didn't know. I had, my mother lived till I, till I was... He was 88 and she died. I was in my 50s. So. I was a little more lucky than even the Buddha. And my father wasn't king. He was a businessman. So, and, and my father didn't want me to be a businessman. Like Prince Siddhartha's father wanted him to be a king. You know, so so uh, he, you know, the story goes that the, the wise men predicted that the the baby Siddhartha would, would either be a, a, a great uh, world ruler or a Buddha. And the king, his father, said, I don't want him to be one of those Buddhas. I want, you know, fathers aren't always, don't, you know, they aren't very wise, usually. So they oftentimes want something that's not very good for you, like becoming a world ruler. <laughs> would you wish that on your son? great world rule, I think that'd be a nightmare, especially nowadays. And 
he said, I don't want him to be a Buddhist. So the story goes, he's trying to, trying to prevent uh, anything that might incline this, his son toward uh, spiritual development. Well, my father, he said, he says, son, I'm, if you become a businessman, I'll disown you. <laughs> So he, he wasn't keen on me becoming, you know, following in his footsteps. And uh, so in some ways I had, you know, good fortune. I wasn't pressured into having to, you know, I come from a society where it's pretty free in a state where you, you know, ideas, you, 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 you're independent. You don't have to conform to things very much. You can do pretty much what you want. Choose how your lifestyle and free. So, in terms of, uh, of my experience, it was, uh, you know, quite a quite a fortunate birth in in a good family in a in a in a uh, very nice country and society. But still, enormous amounts of dukkha, where he wanted to suicide, and uh, also thinking of of uh, drug addiction, alcoholism, these are all tempting alternatives to this, to this incredible sense of, of these negative forces that seem to, to uh, just be relentlessly persistent in your mind. Self-hatred, uh, uh, despair, uh, anxiety, worry, worry were mental states that, uh, that seem to destroy the quality of life, whatever, whatever, wherever I was. So in the, the, in, in the uh, monastic life, the aim, the teacher like Ajahn Chah in Thailand, he was, he was a brilliant teacher, so he, he, was, he was very good at getting you to see what you were doing kind of direct pointing. So, in, in, even though in, say, living in the forest monastery in Thailand, which was certainly on the level of comfort and all that, and privileged to do what you want, it was almost the opposite. It wasn't comfortable at all. And uh, had to sleep on mats, on bare floors, things like that. Either. That was always my mother and father were into always high quality mattresses <laughs> with springs. And so we always had very nice beds and, and uh, inner spring mattresses, they were called. Uh, these, were, these were absolutely essential in our home. And then to find yourself living in this little hut, you know, and, and you. First time you're sleeping on a on a mat on a on a on a hard floor, you wake up, you know, feeling bruised and your hips aching and all that, and you're used to kind of sinking into these nice soft mattresses. But that's not really suffering. After all, you get used to it. You get used to sleeping on a mat. It wasn't, that really wasn't didn't take long to get used to that. Eating one meal a day, we got used to that. Uh, eating rice. All the time, got used to that. Eating, uh, and uh, in uh, the 
adjusting to the cultural, different cultural qualities and language and all that, I could adjust to that. So the, the, the ability to adjust and adapt was there. And that wasn't suffering unless I started creating suffering around it. So Lung Po Cha would, would, very, would be very skillful getting me to see how I created suffering around the, the, the life of, that I had in Thailand. How, you know, is this suffering, is sleeping on the mat suffering, or is uh, living in the forest monastery suffering? And you'd start contemplating, is it, you know, can I blame this place for my suffering? Can I blame this, these things or these people for my suffering? And through that investigation, I began to see I, was, I would create endless suffering. Not liking this, wanting things to be otherwise. Um, uh, just making issues and problems about the personalities of the monks and the people I was living with and so forth. So this was, and, and so I began to see this, how, how I would do this. And so you, through this reflective ability, then you began to get some perspective and see a way of, that you didn't have to do that. You, you had a way out of it through mindfulness. You can actually stop doing these things. The, letting go of the causes of suffering. So the second noble truth is that insight into, into letting go of the causes, uh, letting go of desire. So then you begin to, to when you, you, you begin to notice the desire and you also begin to practice letting go of it. And through, through acknowledging, through recognizing things as they are, you're actually letting go of them. It's not resisting, it's not annihilating or destroying, but it's in fully accepting, fully being with the desire that you can let go of it. Not in the sense of trying to get rid of desire, but to understand it, to to know it, to accept it as conscious experience in which you can. And through that, you find you're you're you're, you're not resisting it because resisting desire is another form of attachment to it. Whatever you're resisting, you're in some way you're attaching to it. Isn't it? You're becoming obsessed was trying to get rid of something, which is another kind of desire. So within the, the experience of our human state, then we can realize these things ourselves in just the little ways uh, that, that we experience. That's not like grand, fantastic, enlightenment experiences. Sometimes you think, you see the, you know, you hear stories or read the, uh, see movies and that, or about the Buddha and the, uh, you know, you have some kind of fantastic uh, orchestral music in the background, the Buddha's enlightenment and, and 
lightning and and uh, and uh, all that kind of you know fantastic uh, uh, arrangements of that we could imagine the enlightenment experience as being. And sometimes we we're expecting too much. We don't recognize the the pure state of awakeness that isn't that is always possible for us, which isn't fantastic in the sense it's not a big thing. It's not like blazing in in you know where all the world systems stop all at once. But it's uh, and, and, and it's overlooked usually. Our, in, um, you know, our problem is we overlook. We don't notice because we're we're always going off to extremes, seeking extremity as a as a distraction in terms of conditioned experience. Now, in Buddhist meditation, you're really bringing attention to like the breath, the ordinary breathing of your body, just the ordinariness of of that which is happening right now, because it is not, ex- you know, in, in itself it doesn't, uh, it isn't uh, like an extreme experience, it's an ordinary experience, breathing, the, the body, the conscious experience of presence. <coughs> so by <coughs> learning to bring attention or awakenness to the present, we begin to recognize that we don't suffer at all when we're fully present. This is what I've seen. There's no suffering. I don't, I don't experience suffering when I'm fully mindful in the present. And I don't know about you, so you have to find out. Uh, but when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm not fully mindful, I caught up into something, then, then I and I can feel the suffering of situations that, you know, I create suffering from my struggle and my resistance to the conditions uh, that I'm experiencing. So the meditation then, attitude of relaxing, isn't it? it's not just, if you're trying too hard to meditate, what happens? You know, your, your, your try, your effort is based on a willfulness and ideas about practice. So you, it's like you, you're trying so hard, you, you, you know, you, you know, to get something. So it's not, not that kind of effort when you're trying to get something. It's not the right effort, but it's the effort to, to stay awake and 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 in that uh, to begin to appreciate just the ability to be uh, awake and and attentive in the present moment. The kind of listening attention in the present that you can sustain and it's relaxed. It's not for you try to force it. You, then it, you can't sustain that kind of effort for very long. You lose it and your mind will wander and, and, you'll, and, and you'll always be trying to get some, something that you imagine you should, you know, that you imagine that you'd like to have, some state that you'd like to get. So 
rather than doing that, we begin to learn to relax and pay attention. And so, New Age ideas are very much based on this, and then how to relax and stress management courses and so on. As people, <laughs> so our society has gone to such an extreme where we just, you know, every, our life is, with all its comforts and privileges, is a stressful experience. We're just driving us crazy. All our cleverness and that, then, that we have, you know, that we, we, uh, we have been, you know, we're incredibly clever now with all these computers and that. But also the level of stress increases. So meditation then is, is relaxation, it's paying attention, listening. And, the, and in the terms of the Buddhist teaching is, is Dhamma, or the Dhamma means the truth of the way it is. So Dhamma is to be realized. It's not, you're not kind of told that you have to believe that things are a certain way, but it's, it's the ability to observe. Because when you're fully mindful, in those moments of pure mental of clarity and mindfulness, then the truth is revealed, has a revelatory experience where you actually, actually, uh, you know, you're, it's not something you're getting from a book or, or proving uh, from a theory, but as you trust in that openness, relaxed attention to the present, then the truth is revealed and it's, it's, uh, it's ineffable. You can't, the Buddha never told us the what, never told us the truth. <laughs> Well, he wasn't, wasn't trying to, to tell us, he, he, when he talks about Dhamma, what does he say? All conditions are impermanent. He's pointing to, to uh, conditions, to look at conditions uh, as, as impermanent, which is, a, which is a contemplation, isn't it? You're, you're not trying to believe that everything's impermanent, you're just, you're varying. Is, it, is there anything truly permanent? Is there any condition you can find that's permanent? You know? And so it this kind of puts you into that mode of, of observation, listening, attention, reflection. And then the, he uses like the five khandhas, the body, the feelings, the perceptions, mental formations and consciousness. These are not self, because usually we're the ego, the personality, uh, the sense of ourself is always uh, very much uh, identified with the with feeling, or with the body, or with our thoughts and views, our memories and, and mental formation. So that we're, we're now we're looking at these in uh, these five categories, these five aggregates. Not we're not trying to to just project that it's not self as, as an idea, but but contemplate, what is self, you know? What is our personality, the sense of uh, me as a person? Is that something that, that is ultimately real and ongoing? Or is it something that comes and goes in experience? This is something you begin to notice. 
like the sense of yourself as a person, uh, is something that comes and goes. It's not, it's not a, a fixed thing. Me as a person is a, is a, is a emotion and a, and an assumption that comes and goes when I, when there's awareness of it. So you're, you're really observing this. The, the, you break down the illusions of yourself, the, the, the ignorant illusions that you have about yourself as a person. And then you're, you're beginning to awaken to the truth of the way it is, the Dhamma. And it's something that you, each one of us has to do for ourselves. It can't be kind of, you can't, somebody else can't do it for you or make you do it. It's something that you, that you do, that we all can practice in this way. So now it's a good time for walking around the stupa. <laughs> And anyone who, whose candle goes out is a rotten egg. <laughs> and death, then, say they with the Buddha, it's interesting to see how, you know, like, like uh, they, they say the para-nibbana uh, is a, it's not being euf using euphemisms, but it's, it's like the, the, the Lord Buddha on his, when his physical body died, was aware of it as for what it was. It wasn't like I'm dying, isn't this? This condition has now reached its end and it ceases. And it's also interesting in the scriptures, the Buddha, after his enlightenment, never, he never referred to himself as a person or as anything. He called himself the Ditakada, which is an interesting word, uh, translated as the thus come one or that which is present now. It's like uh, he, he never. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I, I used to be, you used to know I was Prince Siddhartha, my mother, my mother was Mahamaya, my father was King Siddhartha, and I was born in Nepal, in Lumpini, you know, and then, uh, and I was, I know I was very good in archery, and had this beautiful wife, and <laughs> the, whole, the whole curriculum vitae of the, of uh, Siddhartha Gautama was uh, no longer meaningful to a Buddha, so the actual experience uh, of the Buddha was the present. There's no person in the present. There's nobody with a history. And how many of us really are attached to our biographies, our sense of ourself as being somebody with, who, who, who did things in the past? You, know, you really can see how strongly conditioned we are to hold to a sense of ourself as being like born in such and such a place. Being, th these things are, are really ours. But 
when we really investigate it, it's all just perception, conditioning, and, and it no longer has the same power to, to, uh, to delude us. So this, this uh, in the Pali language, they have this word datada, or uh, the Takeda, the Buddha referred to himself as the Datakada. He didn't say, I'm the Buddha, you know, the, I'm, great, I'm an enlightened uh, being, uh, look at me. It's a, it's a kind of way of referring to, the, to experience in the way it is in the present, rather than uh, from the conventional position. of a person that was actually born and, and was, you know, has a history behind him. That's an interesting reflection, because in terms of experience, and, and, you know, that's more how, what, how you actually are experiencing life from the present, rather than, than interpreting life always from the sense of yourself and your past and who you think you are, your personality. And then in that is, uh, is the experience of non-suffering. And there's joy, there's, there's not a dead state of kind of, like a zombie, where, where you're, you're, you're just kind of indifferent and passive to the flow of life. It's not like that in terms of experience. It's you're with the flow of life, you're really listening, attentive. It's not, it's not a, a passive indifference to the, to the experiences that we all have till the, the body dies. But it's no longer being uh, overwhelmed or, ta- or, or being taken in by the apparentness or the seemingness or the conventional reality. So we we can, you know, we find incredible strength in being able to, to, to bear with unpleasantness, with age, with an aging body, or sickness, or pain, or loss of love, or changing conditions. This, this mindfulness, and you, you find you have, you know, you have a, a strength to bear with the sadness and and the suffering that we're all going to experience uh, in this human state. The, the part of the loss of the loved, having to be with the unloved and so forth. And then the joys, the joy of, uh, that we experience in this, in this realm, the sense realm where, where we, we experience so much beauty and goodness as human beings. The joy that comes through beauty and goodness and truth in our human state. The joy is, a, is, a, is also coming out of that purity of mindfulness. But it's not, we're not attaching, we're not trying to, to hold on or seek happiness or, or make anything, uh, you know, try to hold on to anything, but to be fully with. And then the, the fleeting moment, the sunlight uh, on the tulips and so forth, this the joyful moment of, 
of sensory experience are appreciated rather than grasped at. Because we, we also have enormous amounts of, of, you know, in this realm, sensual realm and material realm, uh, experience of great beauty, love, goodness as, as a part of our human experience, but it's not, it's no longer something we grasp at. Through this understanding and insight into the Four Noble Truths, three aspects of each truth and twelve insights. Theravada Buddhism is a very, uh, its formulas are, are pretty dry. <laughs> But in a way, it, it's a, it's a, it's a way of you know it's, a, it's like you, like the four noble truths is something that I've you know it's easy to remember them. And uh, and dukkha is something that I certainly have enough experience with. You know, it's not something that rare that only happens once in a while. I'm not, you know, dependent on special conditions for suffering. I can create suffering even under the best conditions. <laughs> Remember, before I became a monk, I was in the Peace Corps, American Peace Corps in Sabah in North Borneo. And uh, I was in this idyllic place, this tropical paradise. Absolutely super. Like, it's a kind of dream, you know, if you read novels by Somerset Maugham and that, and he had these kind of romantic dreams of living on a tropical island. Well, this dream came true. For two years I lived in this, on this tropical island uh, in, in, in the west coast, east coast of Borneo. This lovely little place, the, the Celebes Sea, the crystal clear coral waters, the palm trees, white sand beaches, I, was, uh, I taught English in a Chinese school. The little Chinese kids, really sweet. I really liked them. It was nice. I mean, I enjoyed my work. The Chinese children were so much easier, better behaved than American children, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and the life was just so utterly pleasant in itself. For two years, I. Lived in this in this uh, realm of of, this, of great pleasure, beauty, and privilege. Had servants and and, uh, and a lot of fun. Incredible amounts of fun. We had to go out boating, skin diving. Uh, there were several millionaires living as a smuggling port. And these millionaires used to have you know Napoleon brandy and Danish beer and bring in. Chinese cooks from Hong Kong, where they prevent, prevent, you know, for for us, they'd have these parties and banquets and all the best Chinese food. Life can't get better than this in terms of, you know, tropical, uh, beautiful tropical island, privileged lifestyle. Good people, even the people I live with were so pleasant, uh, good in, good people, and yet. In that, in the midst, in those two years, I managed to make myself very miserable. Why? Why am I so unhappy when I've got everything? Right, well, I'm, you know, I, I'll only be here two years, and then I have to go back to the states. 
that was a wet blanket of a moment, wasn't it? You know, you know, immediately you're in a state of, uh, <laughs> how can I keep it? You know, I, how, you know, how can I stay here? You know, I started clinging, thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to, you know, see if I can stay on and and uh, keep this place for myself. And my mind just started grasping, and then, and then you were, and you're caught up. You're all your old selfish habits. Uh, you get hurt if, if somebody said something, or you weren't invited to some place and others were, and, and you, you know, all this stuff was just so much a, a part of my suffering. And uh, that, and then um, anxiety about, uh, you know, the, what people thought of me, whether people liked me or didn't like me, and on and on like this. Uh, even in the midst of of, of this uh, all this this paradise, as creating this misery, and it was so apparent there because I really couldn't blame it on anybody or on the place. It was very apparent that I was I was creating this suffering. So when I really saw that, then um, I had no problem in letting go of of. Uh, Saba, I, after I finished my contract, went off to Thailand and became a monk. <laughs> and I could see that there's no point, you know, even if I could manage to stay there, I would still be doing the same thing. So, uh, and I knew that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life just uh, repeating the same mistake. So in this, this, this opportunity we have as as Buddhists, the people who interest have this faith or this respect or interest and opportunity to to practice the Dhamma. And this is this is something to really treasure and to to and to respect yourself for that you have the ability, the interest uh, to to do this. I mean, you wouldn't be here if you didn't. So, I mean, it's something. To, to you know contemplate that you're and to to treasure in yourself that that you're that you're awakening you have you have some kind of intuitive uh, some intuition some kind of realization something in you that that uh, is is awakening to the Dhamma and I just want to encourage uh, you to trust in it and to to uh, develop it as best you can, so that you you uh, will uh, free yourself from the momentum of bad habits, selfishness, and delusion that we all carry around with us into realizing the truth of the way it is. So I offer this for your reflection.